This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. A new investigative report details the intrigue and political fighting over L.A.'s new city council map. We'll go in-depth. And California's cheap areas, not so cheap anymore. Also, we're going to help you make friends. Help each other make friends. How? Well, keep listening, and we'll tell you. We start, though, with fighting over L.A.'s council map. Jill Cowan is the California reporter for the New York Times. She's based here in L.A. and is the co-author of uh, an investigative report into the council map. Jill, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So give us a, a sort of a thumbnail sketch on what the reporting found, because it, it sounds as if after great effort, the redistricting effort for the uh, city of Los Angeles really didn't go anywhere. Right. So I guess in 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 a nutshell, um, it it's uh, the redistricting process in 2021, which which happens every every time we have a new census, um, pretty quickly devolved into a big political brawl and 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 something of a mess. And they ended up with a map that was not very different from the one that they started with. Um, and so it was essentially an illustration of of why uh, and and how um, you know this 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 process of governance can become sort of corrupted and 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 messy uh, in Los Angeles because there's so much power at stake. You know, there's a lot of residents in Los Angeles who keep an eye out on uh, City Hall, and they uh, some of them have said they feel like there's so much entrenched corruption there that we hear about this case or that case it's just the tip of the iceberg and it's i think you alluded to it there's so much power at stake here is there so much power that the corruption in like when it comes to redistricting and making deals with people is it so entrenched that there's no way to get it out without starting over from scratch well i I think that experts would say, and and there have been a lot of them weighing in since the uh, the leaked recordings of this sort of bald political and 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 the racist comments, political dealings, and racist comments that that caused such a stir last year. And that was actually how we started looking into the redistricting process. That's what they were talking about. Um, I think I don't think that that most people would say that it is unfixable. Uh, but it does require continued engagement from Angelinos. So if you were frustrated uh, by what you heard on those tapes and you want to understand it, I would recommend, um, you know, <laughs> reading our, our story a little bit, but also paying attention as as uh, these efforts to reform continue to sort of eke their way through City Hall. Um, you know, they're planning to put to voters uh, a, a a measure that would take redistricting entirely out of the hands of council members who have right now the final say over their own constituencies. So that's that's a part of why this became such a fight. Um, you know, so they're they're they've promised to put a ballot measure that would would allow voters to say, no, you don't get to pick your own districts uh, anymore. And um, they are also talking about a, a ballot measure that would expand the council. And, um, you know, some of the experts who who looked into possible reforms have recommended expanding the councils because right, expanding the council, because right now. Um, council members have so many constituents that it's really hard for them to be responsive to them. And also they just have so much power over so much land and real estate. And, um, and that, 
you know, uh, experts have sort of said gives rise to corruption. So who actually loses from this process uh, and how do they lose? Sure. And and this is the thing that's that is is complicated and and we tried to to make it as clear as possible in the story. But essentially redistricting is meant to um you know make representation of communities more more fairer and more equitable um by drawing district boundaries that would allow uh communities to elect candidates of their choice. And that's kind of a fancy way of saying that um, you know, who, where you, where, which district you're in matters in, in Los Angeles. And, you know, these, these elected officials, the city council members, uh, in, in many of these cases convinced the people living in these, in the districts such that they were drawn to vote for them once. And what they want to do is essentially say, I want to hang on to those voters, even if that doesn't accurately or doesn't as accurately reflect uh, the city as the way that it looks now. So, for example, um, you know, one of the ways that the map was was initially redrawn by commissioners before the city council got a hold of it um, was supposed to reflect changes and and a lot of growth in the San Fernando Valley, right? And so, so, um, and that's where a lot of people live. And there are also, you know, ways of drawing in or 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 council members have tried to draw in. Um, you know, big economic drivers into their districts, because if they have those in their districts, they have some influence over the way that they mm. um, the way that they operate that, you know, those those jobs, that investment, you know, gets gets to be, you know, gets to benefit their districts and their constituents. Right. And then they can go back to those those um, those constituents and say, hey, look at look at what I've done. Look okay. at what I've what I've brought to our district. All right. Um, and made your life better. And so, you know, it, it becomes basically about protecting their own jobs. Um, and that's, that's kind of, um, you know, and then that, that makes it difficult for, for, you know, these redistricting folks, these okay. experts to sort of do their job. All right. Jill Cowan, uh, California reporter for The New York Times. Uh, we did reach out to uh, Nisi Raman on the council. She's going to connect with us this afternoon at 245 today. We'll talk to her about this. We also reached out to Council President Paul Krikorian. Now, spokesperson says the charter amendment is being put together that would help uh, set up an independent panel to create council districts. Uh, the amendment would then be voted on by the residents. Right now, though, the Georgia Special Grand Jury Report looking into the 2020 election has been released. It recommended to indict South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, as well as the state's two former senators. John Acevedo is a legal analyst and professor at the Emory University School of Law in Atlanta. John, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So what are we to make of it that the and we should very briefly explain, because it's different in different states, that in Georgia, there was a a special grand jury that really did the investigatory work. Right. uh, And then made recommendations. And then it was up to the uh, local D.A. and a regular grand jury to issue the indictments, which is what, in fact, happened. However, the indictments that were released did not mention anything about uh, Lindsey Graham or the other two people. And what we're seeing here is uh, a large case, a uh, complex case, and it went down to those defendants uh, that the district attorney feels is most likely to lead to conviction. 
So what we're seeing is some of the uh, more extraneous defendants, those like uh, Senator Graham, who don't have strong connections to activities committed in Fulton County or even the state of Georgia, kind of falling by the wayside and a focus on instead uh, the kind of core Georgia-related defendants. Can we make any kind of assumption? And I know assumptions are are, are kind of almost pointless in these things. But <laughs> that said, can, can we maybe conclude that these gentlemen were not uh, indicted because perhaps they are cooperating? Uh, that is definitely one possibility. Uh, another possibility will be that there simply wasn't enough uh, information to go forward. It is very likely, and I think we can assume that these are individuals who are very likely to be called as witnesses uh, against the 19 indicted defendants because they were so core to the case that the special grand jury felt they themselves could be indicted. Uh, and that will likely lead to some cooperation uh, if for nothing else the district attorney having to give them immunity uh, in order for them to testify. But in a way, isn't it unfair, actually, to to these uh, three people because they they get named now uh, in a public document from a special grand jury, right? But then they're not actually indicted, so they don't have an opportunity to clear their names if they can in a court of law. There's something that doesn't seem fair about that. And that's really why a lot of states, including California, have moved away from grand juries to it being an option. Uh, and we see this where you know, to have the phrase indicted by the grand juror, even recommended by the special grand jury, uh, does taint a person's name. Uh, and that is one of the dangers of the grand juries. I would just enc encourage all listeners to remember none of these defendants, not even the 19 uh, indicted ones, are guilty in any way. They're still just accused, uh, and we need a criminal trial before any guilt should be attached to their names. I think we also found out looking at this report, there was one juror who, no matter what uh, was decided on by the rest of the jurors, voted against taking any action whatsoever against Donald Trump. Uh, does that is that like a warning bell for a later jury when they're actually trying this case? They're going to have some Trump holdouts on there who are, you know, Trump is never wrong. He can never be wrong. And I will never uh, take part in finding him guilty of anything. That's certainly going to be a, a difficulty for the district attorney's office. Uh, the trial jury is a little bit smaller, 12 individuals uh, plus alternates. Uh, and it's why it's going to be a very long jury selection process. Uh, we've seen that in some recent RICO cases here in Fulton County where jury selection dragged into a full month. Uh, so it is likely to be a long, laborious process to find those 12 individuals who are going to be impartial. Let me throw uh, another assumption one might make from uh, not having the people named in the special grand jury, some of them anyway, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, not indicted. Um, I mean, you know, one of them, of course, is a current U.S. senator. The other two were uh, former senators at the time. They were in power when the uh, special grand jury, and I think when the grand jury perhaps uh, was in session. Uh, could there be a possibility that there was a reluctance on the part of the DA to tackle somebody, for example, who was a United, a sitting United States senator who wields an enormous amount of power? Well, from uh, the district attorney's letter, uh, I believe yesterday, uh, to um, House Representative Johnson, I, I think she's willing to tackle anyone she feels she can get a conviction on. Uh, it may have been, however, that these individuals the cases weren't strong enough to warrant the cost and the effort to go after them. And that's something district attorneys 
make a call in you know every criminal case. Uh, do they have enough evidence? Uh, is it likely to proceed? Are they likely to get a conviction? So it's very likely she just, in the balance of weighing uh, what was possible uh, and likely outcome, decided these individuals just were not worth pursuing. John Acevedo, thank you so much. Legal analyst, professor at the Emory University School of Law in Atlanta. And a little bit later in the show, we are going to help you make friends. Well, maybe not maybe not me and Rob, but a coach. Yeah, it'd be hard to make us friends. Yeah, well, but, but she's going to try. Yeah, because yeah. uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, you and I really don't like each other at all. We're, no, no. You know, we're like cats and dogs in here. No, I despise you. And uh, <laughs> I know it's, it's, I'm surprised there's not bloodshed on the walls uh, by the time the uh, show is over. Uh, right now, though, the shrinking amount of local news content around the country has some nonprofit groups taking action. They plan to invest $500 million over the next five years in local media organizations. Jane Hall is professor at the School of Communication at American University, also author of a book called Politics and the Media, Intersections and New Directions. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. I can't offhand remember which founding father said that a a free electric depends on a a free press so that the electric can be informed as to... uh, what to know about making the right decisions when it comes to voting. And that's how we maintain our freedom. So the freedom of the press is absolutely essential to a free democracy. So if local media begins to get absorbed and goes away, that's the danger that that you're looking at, right? That, uh, that yeah, there's big media, but it's the local media that really drives informing a local population. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in my book and in, in research that's being done, The idea of news deserts uh, has been a growing concern and a growing phenomenon. And the research shows that many, many newspapers have been disappearing under Ronald Reagan, who started this uh, deregulation of of the media. The caps on who could own what uh, went away, and there's been more and more consolidation and more and more cutbacks. Uh, to the point that there are many towns where they have a newspaper with one reporter or they have no reporter. And the research shows that people don't vote uh, if they are in a news desert. And they also don't know what's going on. I mean, that's really pretty basic. And to what degree has social media played a role? Because, as you know, before social media came along, newspapers uh, made their money primarily from ads, right? Uh, Classifieds, uh, car dealerships, that sort of thing. Uh, And a lot of that has migrated to the uh, Internet now. So their money stream has dried up. Right. It's a bad it's a bad combination of the fact that newspapers used to be uh, described as, as as a license to make money. I mean, they were making so much money. They were the only ones in town. And the Internet began to charge a lot less, be a lot more nimble. And at the same time, uh, the deregulation was happening. And so it's been a real vice around a lot of newspapers. And it's it's something that a lot of people are concerned about, which is why I believe this grant is such a terrific thing. It's going to take a nonprofit model or a hybrid of some kind to support local news in a lot of these markets. That's why these people are getting involved in it. As local content goes away, most Americans are getting their news from fewer and fewer sources. How many sources are we talking about here when we talk about uh, your mainstream cable TV networks and national networks? Well, you know, cable TV uh, is is basically three networks uh, that have a pretty loyal audience to each. 
uh, local television is still vibrant. Uh, local newspapers have been shrinking. Employment at local newspapers has been shrinking. Something like 20% of, of cities in this country, according to this latest report, do, uh, it's 20% of, of towns, uh, many of them not in cities, let me rephrase that, are in a news desert where they don't get any, any kind of local news, any kind of vetted information. But Jane, uh, and but, that's really the key. Right. But 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 uh, even apart from these so-called news deserts, even in major markets, New York, L.A., Chicago, I mean, let's be honest about it. Uh, local TV news uh, traditionally has gotten a lot of its report, basic reporting done by the local newspapers. And even in big cities, those newspapers have lost staff over the years. They can't do a lot of the things that they they used to do that is bound to have an impact even in major markets for local television. That's absolutely true. You know, in the old days when the New York newspapers went on strike, uh, the television stations and the TV networks, the joke was they didn't have anything to cover. I mean, they were using <laughs> the reporting. You'll see newspaper reporters from the New York Times, the L.A. Times. I work for the L.A. Times. You know, the L.A. Times uh, has been bought by by a, a billionaire owner. The Washington Post has been bought by a billionaire owner. And that that is one of the ways that some of these newspapers have been surviving. But in rural areas, especially um, many, many towns, um, many, many mid-sized towns. You know, I'm from a smaller smaller town in 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 Texas, and our newspaper was bought, you know, family held, was bought. And literally, it got down to one reporter. And I mean, you just cannot cover that. Reporters from Gannett, which is one of the major chains, just went on protest, highly unheard of, to protest the fact that they cannot do news if they have nobody reporting the news at these papers anymore. All right. Jane Hall, thank you so much. Professor in the School of Communication at American University, also author of a book called Politics and the Media Intersections and New Directions. You're listening to KNX in depth with Rob Archer. I'm everyone's default, default. friend, <laughs> Charles Feldman. For lack of a better alternative, yeah. Uh, when homes along the coast of California started to get expensive, people started moving inland. But then, when those areas got too expensive, they went inland even more for more cheaper homes. But if they go too much inland, right. they're like in Ohio. You're going to be uh, eventually. You're going to run out of land and be in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, well, it seems people are running out of places to go for affordable housing. You know, even uh, inland areas, for example, like Modesto and uh, Bakersfield, they're far more expensive now than the national average when it comes to housing. Richard Green is director and chair of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. Richard, thanks for being with us. Pleasure. So if you want to stay in California, and that's a presumption that maybe we shouldn't make, but if somebody wants to stay and live in California, how can they do it? It's really hard. And, and by the way, I do want to stay in California, so at least one person does. But okay. uh, no, it, it is um, very expensive, as you said, particularly relative to incomes. And it, as you said quite correctly, it used to be that people would go to the Inland Empire as a way to escape high cost, but now the Inland Empire has gotten expensive, and so they're moving to Bakersfield, which had about 20% population growth in the last decade. And there is no place in California where home building is keeping up with population growth, except here on the coast where now we're losing population. And so, uh, but, but we're so far behind on the coast that you need to lose a lot more people. 
before you'll see real relief in the housing market even here. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, as it currently stands, it's unsustainable. You can't keep doing that. But eventually enough people move away that uh, the prices start to come down where you are. But then by that time, that area becomes kind of a depressed economic area. Is this a loop that we can't get out of? Yeah, well, it's, you know, I don't know that it becomes a depressed economic area because um, if you look at uh, Dallas, now they're, they're, they're building so fast that the cost of housing is falling in Dallas, even though they have population growth. So you could have falling house prices and not be in an economic doom loop. Uh, I think, but but even close to us, so most people in California have been for years moving to Las Vegas and to Phoenix and more recently to Salt Lake City and Boise, staying closer and uh, uh, so they can be near their families still or relatively near their families and house prices in all those places are going up. And, and one of the constraints that's happening in Phoenix and Salt Lake City is with respect to water is they are running out of it or we're appearing to run out of it. But we've had some good rainfall in the last year, of course. And so that's starting to put uh, a constraint on their ability to build. So it it's even moving beyond the Colorado River right now. So, and, so, so the housing of, affordability has become a national problem. It's not just a California problem. I, I was going to say, at the end of the day, do we all end up in New Jersey? Well, New Jersey has expenses, expensive houses, too. Yeah, uh, oh, there, maybe, there goes that one. <laughs> so. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe Chicago. Oh, now why Chicago? Well, I, I was just thinking of a place where housing is still pretty cheap and there are a lot of jobs and, and things, but there is that weather Wow, um, but if you yeah, but, think but, you know, climate, if climate change works the way a lot of people think it's going to work, Chicago will also be more pleasant from a weather standpoint. But but, but but that raises an interesting question: Is Chicago doing something right that we're not in terms of of uh, housing affordability? So yeah, I mean, so first it should be noted about Chicago. Chicago has been losing population, uh, not rapidly. It's not like other midwestern cities in the Rust Belt. And of course, that that relieves pressures on the housing market. But yeah, it's actually very easy to build in Chicago. It's very easy to build up in Chicago. If you visit there, you will see all kinds of relatively new high-rise uh, multifamily buildings. And it's because in, in Chicago, they're, they take pride in building up. Now, the other thing is they claim the first skyscraper in the world was in Chicago. New York will beg to differ with that. But the other thing that helps in Chicago is you have a very flat topography that makes it, from a physical standpoint, quite easy to build there. And, of course, being on a great lake, it has lots of water. So a lot of the constraints that the rest of the country are facing with respect to new construction, they're not facing in Chicago. Mm. Richard Green, thank you so much. Director and chair of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. Charles, let's you and I move to Chicago. Uh, you can go to Chicago. I'll right. go to, I don't know. Uh, Somewhere away from Chicago. <laughs> I, I, I would actually go overseas at this point. Really? Yeah. Where? Uh, London, Paris. London. You know, when I visited London, I fell yeah. in love with it, and it was hard to come back home. Yeah, no, I, I would I yeah. would go. But it's also expensive there. Yeah, I lived there for a small amount of time. Well, because you're lucky. We have coaches now. 
uh, for lots of things uh, aside from sports. There are uh, life coaches, right, and uh, relationship coaches, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. even uh, career coaches. Yeah, and Shasta Nelson, one of those uh, friendship coaches, her latest book is called Friendtimacy, How to Deepen Friendships for Lifelong Health and Happiness. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my privilege. So right off the bat, you can tell that Charles and I do not like each other. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a barely concealed rage uh, that we have for each other, and it's it's amazing that it has not become physical at some point. So how would you uh, how would you make us friends? I think you already are friends, but hmm. oh my goodness, how fun would this be? Let's do a coaching session with the two of you. Okay, that would be okay. great. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's. All right. Okay. You're, you're let's on. Go. go ahead. Go. <laughs> all right. So. We would look at relationships. We come in and what's so cool is that most of us, 75% of us wish our friendships were better and stronger. And you guys actually, I think, sound like you have an amazing friendship, but we would look at like where, what you each want more of from each other. So Mm. there's a question for you. What would you, if you would strengthen the friendship to make it more meaningful or more supportive, what would you each want from that friendship? I'll go first, money. (laughs) You know, I was going to say the same thing. You could give me more money, Charles, we're, and I would love you more. We are true capitalists. Yes. <laughs> we, want, we want money from each other. No, okay. I honestly, I, now in this case, in the case of Charles and myself, honestly, uh, yeah. No, yeah. no more snarky. Uh, I can't imagine Charles being any different than he is that would please me more mm. because I like him the way he is. And that's why I like him. So what would I change? Boy, I wish I could say the same about you. I know. And I know that you can't, too. (laughs) And I love that. (laughs) What's so cool is that we aren't trying to change each other. We're trying to change the dynamic. So every single one of us has a pattern with every single friendship you have. You think about it like some friends are the friends you talk to once a month and others are the ones you might talk to weekly and and we set a pattern and these are the friends we go do activities with and these are the friends that we talk on the phone with and these are the friends we do with our spouses and we have like double dates and like we all have a pattern that gets established and what's so cool is that we can actually improve those patterns and be intentional about those patterns so a friendship coach would come in like in my case I help kind of assess uh, the health of a relationship, what you want more out of it, what like we know the science of what bonds people. And so being able to look at the science of like where where you guys could could even benefit even more, which is super fun. <laughs> what, what do you tell somebody uh, who comes in uh, to get your help who says, uh, oh, I've I've got lots and lots of friends on on uh, Facebook and, you know, people that I've never but they've never actually met those people. And then when you ask them, well, how many friends do you have to, you know, go to dinner with? Or they go, oh, I don't know, maybe one. What do you tell that person? Yeah, I teach, uh, I mean, it's more than we can get into here, but I have five different types of friends that we all need in our lives. And and so as online friend or a friend that's a long distance friend or a virtual friend, like those are all, that can serve a really incredible purpose in our life. So it is important, but to your point, we can like have those kinds of friends and still feel lonely. So here's the important thing. 60% of us listening are lonely on a regular basis. And what's important to realize is that loneliness doesn't mean we don't have any friends. And loneliness does not mean we're not a good friend. Loneliness means we have capacity in our lives and wish for a little bit more support and love and friendship. And so loneliness is like it's like hunger. It doesn't mean just because we get hungry, it doesn't mean we're dying of starvation and have no food, it means we need to go get that need met and go eat. Uh, Loneliness just means we have a need for a little bit more connection in our lives. So I help them identify what that need is. So yes, yay that you have the online friend and maybe you're lonely for local friends to go do stuff with, Mm. to your point. 
Uh, not to cut into your business, but if you have, uh, let's say, two people, right, and they mm-hmm. look at each other and they go, you know, we're friends, but uh, we could be better friends. Let's go see a friendship coach together. And the other person oh. agrees and says, yes, I agree with you. I would like a better friendship with you. Let's go see a friendship coach. At that point, do they need you if they've already decided that? Well, I would love to have that happen more often. We do not treat our friendships the way we treat our marriages. You know, we have this cultural understanding that marriages take work. We'll have to renegotiate. We have needs. We have different things that happen in our lives, but we don't treat friendship the same way. But absolutely, they still need to come see us because here's the important thing is that we know the science of bonding. So I know like there's three requirements for every healthy relationship and we can judge the health of a relationship based upon the positive feelings you feel around the consistency pattern of reliability you create and around the vulnerability that you share. And so you can both have a ton of willingness and interest and desire, but there's still so much to learn. Most of us have never read a book on friendship. Most of us have never taken a class on healthy relationships. Most of us don't know the science. So yeah, you absolutely can come in and have somebody help facilitate that conversation and help draw up what you both need and want from the friendship and how that feels good to both of you. And yeah, absolutely. Holding the space for that conversation would be amazing. What happens when a couple comes in, and and I'm presuming that this may have happened uh, in your business, and they're, they're married perhaps, and they're madly in love, but they're not really friends. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, I mean, the answer of that would be is we would look at that and start talking about what that friendship, where was, where did you have a friendship at one point? What did it look like? Kind of what went awry, but more importantly, what kind of friendship do you both want it to be right now going forward? Because what is that love really resting on when you say madly in love? That sounds more like, uh, <laughs> like maybe some lust and a lot of, but if you love each other, then I'm not sure where, like you would be friends with each other too. Well, I mean, I mean no, I mean, you can you can have a married couple and, and they're, you know, they're having great sex, but they don't really like each other as friends. Yeah. So we so I teach the health, the, the three the three requirements are positivity, consistency and vulnerability. And all healthy relationships have to have all three of those things. And so in a case like that, we would sit there and look and say, OK, so you both enjoy each other when it's in this situation in sex and bed or whatever. And that is a form of vulnerability, but are you sharing your thoughts with each other? Are you sharing your feelings with each other? Are you, uh, I, I don't like, are you I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like the icky stuff. <laughs> See, how do you deal with something like, like, uh, let's say like me that, uh, you know, I have very few close friends. I have a lot of people that I like and know, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, when you talk about being open and vulnerable to each other, and I know I'm not the only one, there are people listening no. who go, yeah. uh, ew. Yeah. But this is the thing is that, so some of the loneliest people right now have a ton of friends. That's what's so fascinating about this. Some of the loneliest people are the most liked, most enjoyable networked extroverts out there. And they're still lonely because they're not going deep enough with a few. So few, so more of us, we're not lonely these days from lack of having anybody. We're not lonely. I always say we're not lonely from lack of interaction. We're lonely from lack of intimacy. See, Rob. And that's really important. So in a case like, (laughs) go ahead. Yeah. But Rob, do that again when you went. Yeah, see, that's why you, that's why you don't have friends. Ah, when you do that, it's also clear now. Uh-huh. Thank you so much, uh, Shasta Nelson, uh, friendship coach. Uh, latest book is called "Friendship Is See How to Deepen Friendships for Lifelong Health and Happiness." Charles, let's you and I uh, go hang out this weekend. Uh, no, okay. That's it for Connection Depth for this week.